Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Welcome to this edition of World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week, we look at Russia's role in the world. As the US struggles to pull together a diplomatic conference on Syria, it's increasingly clear that Russia may hold the key to an international agreement. And yet, under the second Putin presidency, the Russian government seems to have become even harder to deal with, and not just on the Middle East. Whether it's spy scandals, energy diplomacy or neighbourhood diplomacy, dealing with Russia is tough going. So how are we to understand the new Russian government? Joining me on the line from Moscow is our bureau chief there, Charles Clover, and in the studio, our diplomatic editor, James Blitz. James, let's start with Syria. The Russians do appear to hold the key, and yet Western efforts over now more than a year to persuade them to take a tougher line with Assad seem to be really not going anywhere. Yes, that's right. Um, We still don't know how that is all going to play out. Uh, The big thing that has happened in the last few weeks is that John Kerry and Sergei Lavrov, the US and Russian foreign ministers, agreed a few weeks ago that they would seek to convene what they're calling a peace conference on Syria sometime in June, probably in Geneva. And that is going to be the most concerted effort yet to try and bring the parties in the Syrian civil war and other regional states and Western powers together to try and get some kind of reconciliation. But people are pretty sceptical about about whether that's going to get anywhere. The civil war is obviously in an acutely bad phase, even if Assad does seem to be making suddenly a lot more ground. It's unclear to what extent Assad himself and his people will really be part of all this. The Russians clearly are keen that he should be. The US and the UK at the same time have really said on many occasions they can't see a solution to the situation in Syria with Assad involved. So that's really the next big phase. We don't at this stage know how it's going to go, but I think most outside observers are pretty sceptical, given the appalling nature of the civil war, that it is going to go anywhere. And that will raise questions about what happens after that. And Charles, how how are things viewed from Moscow? I mean, do the Russians feel under pressure from the rest of the world? Do they feel beleaguered? Or is there also perhaps a sense that, well, at least they're very much at the centre of things? This isn't one of those uh, post-Cold War periods when people said Russia can just be ignored. Russia's key. Yeah, I think Russia very much is sort of enjoying its moment of being the indispensable partner in the Middle East all of a sudden, which is something it has certainly been, been absent from this role for quite a long time. That said, I've spent more than a year uh, sort of racking my brains trying to explain the sources of the origins of the Russian position on Syria, and it's, and it's actually quite difficult. I mean, we always return to national interests and then try to find explanations in the the arms sales to Syria and the naval base at Tartus that is Russia's only naval base in the Mediterranean. But none of those can really explain exactly what is driving the Russian intransigence, which we've been seeing on Syria. I think the most convincing explanation 
for why Russia continues to be a bit of a roadblock to, to efforts to resolve the crisis is that Syria should be seen in Russia as, as a domestic issue. It's something that as long as Putin cannot be accused of having sold out a former ally in the way that um, former President Medvedev was accused of, of having sold out Gaddafi by abstaining from a from a UN Security Council vote on, on Libya, on the no-fly zone. Putin continues to sort of keep his aura of a, of a strong national leader who has Russia's best interests at heart. So I think that is simply what's driving the Russian attempts to assert themselves in this issue. But this conference seems very similar to the conference that happened last year, which happened to great fanfare, but then in the end, everybody came away with completely different interpretations of what the conference had decided. And, and I think I have a feeling that this, this conference is simply going to be more of the same. Now, James, um, Charles there identifies a kind of shift in tone, at least, from Medvedev in the Kremlin to Putin in the Kremlin. And there are other things that I know concern Westerners dealing with President Putin again. I mean, the crackdown on NGOs in Moscow, the American NGOs, German ones, and also uh, the very continuing hard line that Russia's taken over the Litvinenko case. So is there across the board a sense that Russia is now tougher to deal with than it was say even a year ago yes i think there is i think there is a a sense that is much more difficult to deal with and i think one of the signs of that is that you see this in europe because for a long period of time the british after 2006 with the litvinenko killing the, the british took a very tough stance on that as you know expelling diplomats having sanctions against uh, russia and the Russians reacted very, very toughly to the UK as well. There was five or six years when there was no visit by a UK prime minister to the Kremlin. Uh, and there was a, a very, very difficult reaction from the Russians over things like the British Council presence there. And one of the things the British felt was that they were very much alone. and The Germans were continuing to have a very strong bilateral relationship with the Russians. But actually what has happened is in recent times is that even Chancellor Merkel has put a lot more distance between herself and the Kremlin with some critical comments on human rights and so on. And so there is, just generally speaking, a much more critical stance towards Russia from the Europeans. That said, as Charles has indicated, and I, I think it's generally the case, it's a complex series of relationships. On the one hand, the UK wants to take a tough stance on Litvinenko if it possibly can. On the other hand, the West needs Russia on a range of issues. It needs Russia on Iran. Iran remains the number one foreign policy challenge for the Obama administration, especially if uh, negotiations over its nuclear program come to naught in the second half of this year. It will then escalate right to the top, I think, alongside Syria once again. And there, you do need Russian support on that. Uh, you need Russian support, as we've said, on Syria. And so, generally speaking, um, there's a limit to how far one can press Putin. And Charles, how does that apply particularly to the US, which one of the major initiatives of the Obama first term was the reset with Russia? Are the Americans now abandoning the reset, or are they soldiering on, even though it's very difficult? I think it would be very difficult to say that the reset continues. Um, as soon as the reset uh, began, it, a lot of analysts were already saying that it was over uh, within weeks. It continued to drag on until, I think, when it became clear that Putin was returning for a third term as president, I think everybody sort of suddenly realized, well, that, that's, that's it. The benefits of the reset were the New START Treaty, and Russia also uh, got a U.S. commitment to abandon a previous version of an anti-missile shield. 
When Putin returned to the presidency in short order, the Obama administration signed the Magnitsky Law, which was a, a piece of legislation that imposed selective sanctions on certain Russian bureaucrats who were accused of human rights violations. And this sort of set the tone, which continues. President Putin responded by banning American families from adopting Russian children, which was an extremely severe move on his part that has been much criticized and seems to have, have actually hurt Russia's prestige more than it helped. But uh, that set the tone for a sort of bitter series of tit-for-tat exchanges over everything from Georgia to missile defense to uh, Syria. And now it would be very difficult to say that Russia and the U.S. see eye to eye on anything. I guess what we will see, though, is, is in June there will be a bilateral meeting between Putin and Obama, if I'm not mistaken, in Ireland. And based on that, a warmer relationship may result, but uh, nobody's holding out much hope. And Charles, I must ask you also about this rather bizarre spy scandal with the American arrested with an ill-flitting blonde wig and apparently, uh, you know, prepared to offer people a million dollars to come over. What what was going on there? And uh, is there any moral we can draw for the broader Russian relationship with the West? It's a very, very curious case. The spy versus spy drama seems to continue unabated even after the Cold War ended. And it doesn't really seem to have much impact on the broader American-Russian relationship. Every so often, Russia will kick out a bunch of U.S. spies, or, or the U.S. will will kick out a bunch of, of Russian spies, and some diplomats will be expelled or something. But that's, you know, nothing personal. <laughs> it's just business that's happening in a, in a kind of parallel reality to the rest of the diplomacy, and nobody seems to give it much thought. And yet people say that this is a Russian government that is essentially run by spies. Now, I was talking to a senior British diplomat who said to me that at least under the Soviet Union, there were three power centres. There was the army, the party and the intelligence services. And now, as far as he could work out, there was just the one, the intelligence services. Oh, yeah, very much so. People from the intelligence services do run everything. That's very much true. And they tend to be as is the nature of intelligence operatives, they tend to be very paranoid, and so they see foreign plots and everything. And, and um, I think in general, the Kremlin is very conspiratorial in nature itself, and so they tend to see conspiracies afoot in all corners, and they tend to attribute more power to Western intelligence services than, than honestly, than Western intelligence services really deserve. But this particular incident is very curious, what the Russians are saying is that the CIA has stepped up efforts drastically to recruit agents within the Russian intelligence services over the last year or two. And, and this last attempt by um, this man, Mr. Fogel, to essentially cold call a senior counterintelligence official in the FSB, offer him a million dollars to spy for the U.S. over the phone... Um, <laughs> is just an extremely odd, just from a standpoint of, of tradecraft, but also just it sort of shows uh, perhaps that the U.S. is desperate to find uh, sources of information within the Russian intelligence services. I, I, that's all. That the only conclusion that I can draw from that. Okay, well, James, I mean, it's all got this rather strange and sort of at times slightly amusing Cold War ring. But how seriously uh, should should we take it along? I mean, the the, the portrait Charles and you have painted is of uh, a Russia that's very, very difficult to deal with across the board. But coming back to the question we started with, you know, the Russians are clearly central to Syria, but are they 
once again big players in the world? I mean, does a difficult Russia mean a much more difficult world system, or are they likely to crop up here and there on Syria and so on? But it, but it's not a kind of something that should preoccupy people sitting in Washington or in, or in Brussels, Paris, or London. No, I think it does, generally speaking, make things much more difficult on quite a number of fronts. I mean, if you ask yourself what is one of the big phenomena in the world today, it is that the UN Security Council, whereas so often in the past it's been united on key issues today, is split on the major issue, the major security issue in the world, naming, namely Syria. And so that split between the US and Russia is an enormous problem. Um, on Iran, the good news is that uh, Russia has a clear concern about nuclear proliferation on its southern border, and it is very concerned indeed that that does not continue. And so in that sense, if there's pressure on the Iranians, there's some good news there. An area where there's disappointingly little progress at the moment, which we haven't discussed, is arms control because of real differences between uh, the US and Russia on that, with the Russians continuing to express concern about the US's missile defense program in Europe, although President Obama has made some adjustments which could open the room for maneuver there. But there again, a lot of people would argue it's really important, given that we are on the cusp of a potentially serious growth in nuclear proliferation around the world with both North Korea and Iran pressing ahead, that you do get the US and Russia, which are the two countries which own 95% of the world's nuclear weapons, to really scale back. And yet there again, although there was some progress in the first term, it's very much blocked. So this is a very important issue in security terms, maybe not on economic issues, but certainly on the security agenda. The hope has got to be that when President Obama and uh, President Putin meet at the G8 summit next month in Northern Ireland, that it is the start of something which is a little more productive. But nobody's holding out hope at the moment. James in London, thank you very much indeed. And thanks also to Charles Clever in Moscow. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of non-stop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. 
Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. So you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.